everybody, it's Terry McDougall with Marketing Mambo. I feel so blessed to have worked with so many incredible people in my career. And my guest today is somebody that I met when she came to work at a bank where I worked, and it was her first job out of college. But it was not long before her intelligence, her drive, her ambition really shone through. We've since parted ways and gone different directions, but she's done some really exciting things with her career. Her name is Kelly Peterson, and I am so excited to share the stories that she has to tell about her career and the things that she's done. She's taken a number of calculated risks that have really paid off. As an executive and career coach, I work with a lot of people who come to crossroads in their careers where they aren't really happy with where they find themselves, but sometimes feel a little bit scared to take that risk. I've seen so many people who have found the courage to just follow their heart and move forward, and it can really pay off in spades. If you're at a place in your career where you could use some support and some help in figuring out what comes next, please reach out to me at my website, terrybmcdougall.com, and set up a free, no-obligation, exploratory call to see if maybe I can help you to figure out what direction you'd like to go in and have some support in your corner as you take the calculated risks that are going to get you to the next place in your career. I think that you'll find Kelly's story today really inspirational. I've been incredibly amazed at the things that she's done. So without further ado, let the Mambo begin. Welcome to Marketing Mambo with your host, Terry McDougall. It's the fun and fast podcast where we cha-cha-chat with marketing movers and shakers from around the globe. Hi, everybody. It's Terry McDougall with Marketing Mambo, and I have a wonderful guest on today. Her name is Kelly Peterson, and she started her career in New York focused on marketing strategy and investment banking. And then she made the move to London about six years ago, and she eventually became the chief marketing officer of a fintech, and she has evolved to leading business development there. While in Europe, she also has gotten a dual citizenship between Ireland and the U.S. and has gotten an MBA from Asade which is an international business school located in Barcelona. So Kelly, I want to welcome you to Marketing Mambo. Thank you, Terry. It's so nice to be here. I'm thrilled and I feel very proud to have had this opportunity to spend some time with you today. Well, I think that you have such an interesting perspective. So Kelly, you moved over to Europe a few years ago. Why don't you give us the story of of how that came about? Yeah, sure. So I started my career back in New York at BMO Capital Markets and lovely that we've met there. I feel thrilled to have had that opportunity for you to to work with me and and manage me at um, a few points during that time at BMO. And I accelerated my career to another investment bank beyond BMO, working in marketing strategy at a company called Macquarie. I was at Macquarie for a number of years in New York and 
I had an opportunity after running various marketing efforts with them to actually do something quite similar over in London in the UK. And the head of the central communications and investor relations team in London had asked me to consider joining the business. And that was back in 2015. I was in my mid to late 20s at that point. And I think I was itching a bit to get out. I grew up in New York. I was living in New York. I had spent time doing a lot of different marketing activities across some banks. And I was just thinking, you know, I can't see much more changing moving to another bank in New York doing similar work. I really feel like if I'm able to get out, hop across the pond for a year on this amazing international assignment, I'd be able to get a really unique viewpoint and some real opportunity to get access to diversity of thought from different cultures and nationalities and be able to work in one of the most diverse cities in the world. And that would really open up my mind and open up my opportunities and give me a very exciting kind of point to elevate my career and come back to the States and and see where things go. And it's it's five and a half years later, and I'm still in the UK. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you you have had a front row seat for one of the most historic changes in probably the last century. So what was that like being in London during the whole Brexit vote, and now that they've actually finally Brexited, what's it been like? Oh, well, it's been interesting, to say the least. I think coming over here, I guess I didn't really know what to expect. I was somebody that was very American, which is a f- is great, very proud to be, but landed over here. And looking back in hindsight, I really did not know what I was getting myself into culturally, from a business perspective, from the way people live and work here and the benefits the country provides, kind of a more of a society-minded country, if you will, whereas maybe the U.S. is a little bit more commercially minded. And all of these things kind of really made me adapt and change and open up my mind. But in terms of Brexit, I mean, yeah, what a shock to the system. I mean, I'm living in London, a city that, while very liberal, was very much always voting to stay in the EU. And by a very, very, very sliver of a small percentage, the the Brexit vote happened for us to actually leave the UK. And I think time will tell. I woke up in the middle of the night on that night. I think it was about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the morning watching the votes. And it confirmed on my phone that we Brexited. And I think it was under 2% difference. And it was really, really shocking. But I think we're seeing a lot of trends in in the world around popularism and and people kind of taking back control, as the party had said, and um, thinking about ways to really benefit the, the population in the UK and give benefits to the local people. I think one of the things for me that's really sad in a way, and I'm hoping they can find ways around it, is the diversity of thought and the ability for people to come and have opportunities to really create innovation and really drive different ways of thinking. And that could mean more women in the workplace. That could mean more Asians coming over. That could mean more Europeans coming through. That could mean different countries and different experiences people have in coming into the country. And I think for me, that's something that really hits home because I've had the opportunity to come abroad through a visa at the beginning and to spend time here and 
at the crypto startup, there were 42 of us. I think we had over 25 countries represented within the 42 of us. So you can imagine the different ideas that would come to the table and the way people would think and solve things were so different from somebody from Eastern Europe, you know, through to somebody from Switzerland or from New York per se. So I hope mm-hmm. that will continue. I mean, time will tell along with many other challenges that Brexit brings that we do yeah. not have to go into right now. Yeah, I was still working at BMO in the asset management business whenever Brexit happened. And I was working really closely with our London office. And I remember talking to my counterpart there, the marketing director, and he was in shock. I mean, it's funny. And I do think that being in London, so cosmopolitan and so financially driven, that it's very easy to think that everybody thinks the same way, right? And also people that were sophisticated and sort of understood how important that the interaction between the UK and Europe was. And I know when I was there, the people that worked in the hotels were mostly Eastern European. So I do wonder what impact that's going to have. Are there citizens of the UK that want those jobs? Because couldn't they have just had them before? (laughs) You know? It's a very good question. And I think it, it begs a lot of answers. I also think there's been arguments on the flip side around London is, of course, one of the most cosmopolitan cities and biggest financial hub in the UK and in Europe. But relative to the rest of the UK, there are a lot of people outside of London. And it is sometimes very easy to get wrapped up in kind of the mindset of what a Londoner or a New Yorker or somebody from Chicago might think. And there is obviously a whole other population that did grow up in a time, a lot of them, where they weren't part of the EU. They grew up in a time where they were very used to kind of having the benefits and the amenities and the impact of just being focused on on the UK solely. So a lot of people voted very much from a heartfelt way, from maybe a generational way, from some sort of antiquated way that they connected with. And I try to also take myself out of my own box of thinking and try to understand the why behind it. But also at the same time, it was a very, very, very small percent the marketing around the campaign to leave and actually take back control was phenomenal compared to the campaign of staying in the EU. I remember one anecdotal story. I was getting off at Old Street on the tube to go into the office and there were flyers all over the floor. And I picked one up and it was a brochure by the levers and it had a map on the front of the brochure and it said if we stay in the EU this is what will happen and it had Turkey highlighted in red and all of the countries around Turkey which are at-risk countries in our mindset or instill fear countries like Iran and Iraq and, and, and these countries that maybe make people feel a bit uncomfortable they had them all outlined and they said Turkey is on its way into becoming an EU state And if we stay in the EU, these are the countries that we're going to have to deal with and be associated with. And there was a huge fear factor at play. So there are very interesting tactics around that and around the human behavior and psyche around what people voted for. And and maybe that also played a role in getting that extra couple of percentages to make sure they left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I I do think that sometimes there's... um... I don't know, maybe it's just arrogance, because certainly we saw the same thing here with Donald Trump's election and Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote, but really made some mistakes and some oversights about some places that she should have spent 
some time and attention on some of those states that she lost that were swing states. She lost by just tens of thousands or even thousands of votes. And, you know, even though she won by like 3 million votes overall, I think that that's a little bit arrogant, but whatever. Hindsight's 2020, as they say, but how cool for you to be there to be able to witness it. So you sort of touched on this. You've made this transition from investment banking, and then you went to work in the fintech or cryptocurrency world. So what was that like? Yeah, it was a very interesting and crazy transition, for lack of a a better word. But in my head, I very much saw the transition as organic and quite maybe synergistic to what I was already doing. So I was at the time working at BNY Mellon, leading up continental Europe, marketing for them. And given my background in traditional financial services, marketing and capital markets, I had felt personally like I hit a point of stagnation. I felt that it was a lot of the same, this kind of sea of sameness in traditional financial services, marketing, big corporations, hard to get things done, truly be creative, really be part of building something. Um, Because at those points in my career, I was part of something that was already built. And I think you always have an opportunity to evolve and to maybe try to innovate at these firms and they have big budgets and they have the right infrastructure and the right frameworks to operate in. But ultimately, I really was losing the the passion and it was quite scary for me. But as I saw blockchain technology and cryptocurrency coming to the forefront, I was noticing really interesting trend of a lot of companies that were moving quite quickly in the industry and a lot of companies starting up were very financially focused. And for me, I had a light bulb moment whereby I felt that moving into digital assets actually was at the very early stages and it was replicating a very similar early financial economy, if you will. And I actually felt that a lot of my skill sets from the big banks that I had learned in marketing and working closely with sales would very much translate over. And the team I actually joined was a team that came from many, many years of of banking. They came from Ernst & Young, they came from UBS, they came from JP Morgan. So we all had a very similar mindset and we came together in a very risky, volatile industry, but with a very kind of conservative, thoughtful kind of framework-led mind but we're ready to innovate and build something as a team. And for me, that felt, while risky, I could get myself very comfortable with my thinking behind why I was doing that. And I almost never looked back. We had a lot of challenges, but I loved being part of a small team, figuring out challenges every day. I swear the business strategy changed every week at certain points, but it was great to lead marketing. About a year in, I actually took over the head of sales and business development role and speaking with clients bringing back through a feedback loop internally to my head of product and CTO, kind of what we need to do to actually change the product, which would then move to the head of our sprints, which is part of an agile methodology when you're creating a software development, move it to the head of the sprint basically as a priority because we knew our clients wanted that and really being part of this truly cyclical kind of innovation cycle. Yeah. As you were talking about that, I could feel the excitement in my own body, (laughs) you know, because I'm just thinking about how you could just run fast. And certainly when you were talking about working at a place where we work together, it hit its 200 year anniversary in 2017. That was the year I left. And 
there's certainly some advantages to working for these very well-established organizations, but you know, flexibility and innovation is not one of the benefits typically. And I certainly felt like whenever I left that I was just tired. I was just really tired of having to work so hard to cut through the red tape to be able to innovate. And it was just tiring. And it seems exciting that I'm getting like this image of of you guys like being, hopefully this doesn't sound negative, but like a pack of wolves just running as fast as you can. And that everybody is like lean and smart and just out there looking for the opportunities and and being among other smart and ambitious people like that just sounds like it would be very exciting and energizing and inspiring. Yeah, it it is. And I think I'm really happy that I, and this isn't for everybody, firstly, not everybody wants to take on that type of risk. There are a lot of people in their early stage careers that are very, very happy and comfortable being at large institutions, and that's fine. But for me, the ability to be around people that want to drive change and like actually build a nascent industry from the bottom up, that somewhat replicates maybe financial services to an extent, and you're actually building it together it's incredible. And I never really realized that until I took that leap of faith and I took that risk, but I also balanced the risk given that I'm still young. I don't have a lot holding me back. I've had a relatively successful career that was underpinned by traditional banking, which I always feel I could possibly go back to. And it gives me the time now to really get embedded to like figure out the intricacies of building a business. Like how does operations truly connect with sales and customer support and putting the customer first? How do you then think about how sales actually informs the product build? But obviously the CEO has a vision of what he or she wants to build, but really the vision needs to also come from the market. And how does that kind of bottom up and top down integrate in a way that drives success? What does the risk look like across the business? And like, how does that actually connect into what we're selling? what it means for clients and what frameworks we have in place around governance and regulation and what that all looks like and how's that impacting the industry moving forward and our business. And when you start to see all of these buckets or areas of business interconnect, it's really amazing. And that's part of why I did my MBA, part of why I put it into practice in a small business and a startup, and part of why I left a big company because I would never understand that without having the opportunity to firsthand get stuck in. And that's what you can do at a small company, get stuck in across the board. Yeah. A lot of what you've talked about, I've heard in other episodes of Marketing Mambo. And I think that marketing is a very powerful function if it can be allowed to be interwoven into sort of the DNA of an organization. And it's been a trend as far as topics on Marketing Mambo about how so many really smart people get very frustrated because they have to fight a lot of misperceptions in larger companies about what marketing is and what marketing is capable of. And, you know, if marketing is interwoven into the DNA of the company, which in your situation, because it's a startup, you can be there, you can be weaving this in. And like you said, being that kind of through thread that combines everything from product to operations to business development to marketing. And then there is that loop where it just comes back. You mentioned the agile framework as well. There's a reason why 
tech companies use agile, right? Because we don't know what the future holds. We just come up with hypotheses about what we think is going to work. And we go out and test it with customers. And then we come back and, and we share what we learned. And we, we just keep optimizing or iterating to move towards the optimal solution. And that's so exciting for you to be able to be on the forefront of that. Yeah, it has been. And the ability to learn that much more quickly is incredible. I have learned a lot in the start of my career. I won't take away from that. But the last couple of years of my life, between getting the master's degree in Spain with 42 students from 40 different countries flying in every month to sit in class together for a year and a half, and the experience at the startup and really being involved in building a business from the bottom up has just been eye-opening. And I feel really grateful to have made that leap of faith and, and given it a go. Yeah, Kelly, well, you have a lot of courage. And I think it's very cool. And we, when you were talking about your risk calculation about, first of all, you were just sort of drawn to it. It seemed exciting. But you also were looking and saying, well, you know, okay, if this doesn't work out, what does plan B look like? And my gosh, I would think that any one of those big investment banks would probably be champing at the bit to bring somebody on who had done investment bank marketing and now had been at a cryptocurrency startup, right? Because so many people don't understand it. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I also noticed about working in investment banking was that the organizations are so complex and there are so many exotic products and so forth that a lot of times different areas of the bank don't even understand what another area does. And I don't know if you ever had this experience, but I certainly did that, you know, as marketing, because you're talking with everybody across the entire organization, you're basically an inch deep and a mile wide because you have to understand a certain amount about the, the businesses that you're doing the marketing for. But I just at first would assume that like, oh, well, these guys are all like, you know, experienced investment bankers and they've been doing this for, you know, 25 years or whatever. And they'd start talking about securitization or, you know, some other area of the bank. And I'd be like, they don't really know what that is. <laughs> I know more about this than they do, you know, because they didn't work <laughs> so in it. True. They, it's worked, so true. they worked in some other area. And I'd hear them talking and I was like, oh. You, you really don't know what this is, which, you know, I mean, no criticism whatsoever, because they yeah. were like a very mild, deep expert in their area. And that's, you know, that's the beauty of corporations, right? You have a lot of specialists that all work together. Anyway, kind of going back to my comment, I think taking a risk like that is really smart of you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And to your point on the specialist at banks, I, I found it very, very similar. And I find it's not easy at some of the larger banks to find real, true success and prove value that marketing brings to the bottom line of the business when the business in itself is so complex they offer so many different products. They actually compete with each other at times that the marketing behind that, that full engine, it, it takes a very long time to move from a very early stage marketing organization, which just is a reactive kind of support function and does maybe pitch books and creds packs and updates the website and throws out some social media and really move the needle from that very early stage marketing model all the way through to becoming a mature marketing function and is really focused on driving 
value, but actually beyond what is value beyond that actually kind of driving revenue for the business and driving revenue opportunities and overlay that with a B2B market, which is very, very, very relationship heavy and a brand that has maybe over 200 years in the market, which is very well known. And that is a long journey to move that needle on the marketing maturity model. And it's one that may never get there. And, and that might be okay, but if you're on a marketing team and you have maybe specific goals in mind or passions in mind, and you really want to be aligned with sales, or you really want to build a brand from the bottom up and really have an impact on the end goal of a business, moving into a smaller company, whether it's a startup or not, even, even a mid-sized company, you can drive so much more impact and you can really align to sales because sales actually really, really needs you. And everything you do to communicate to the market from the branding of the company, the pitch decks that go to investors, the way you create the story and the website, and then the way you sell the business and you actually talk to clients and you iterate that as the market changes and as your product develops is so crucial. And you're seeing actually how powerful marketing truly can be and how the executives of a business, of a team, rely on it more than ever. And I actually find it quite hilarious because the guys that I have worked with in crypto are a lot older than me, a lot more experienced, and they all come from big banks. And I doubt that they ever really understood the value of marketing and PR and media relations and, and all the rest. But when I joined the firm, they really saw the value in it. And I secretly loved it because all of the years of not always maybe being appreciated or constantly fighting the fight to sell in marketing and what this means and the why behind it. And then coming to this small company where everybody was like, Kelly, what do we do? And like, what's our press release on this? We're going to launch this product. What's the product marketing? What, what, what do we do with the sales? And I was like, I secretly love this feeling. Finally. <laughs> Finally, totally. I'm a believer in marketing. And for me, finally, I could see it doing what I always believed it could do. And I was like, this is powerful and gives me confidence and I'm not crazy. And this works. It's not always science. We're not always able to measure it. That's okay. But it works. We see this embedded along the whole product development life cycle and the development of the company. So it, it felt really like a little bit of like a ha-ha moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of yeah like actually, a, not the, not the ha-ha, the ha-ha. A ha-ha moment. Like, yeah, yeah, totally. Kelly, I've talked to a lot of people about this whole idea too. I'm a marketer through and through, and I love marketing. That's why I'm doing this podcast. But it has been a huge frustration to sometimes have to fight <laughs> to, to get your place at the table when you know that marketing can be such a catalyst, it can be such a bridge builder between where you are and where you want to go. But a lot of times it's just met with being taken for granted or, oh, you guys are the party planners or whatever. And it's really a very strategic function. And I think typically people that are really good at marketing are good at strategy and analysis, but also psychology understanding what motivates people and being able to bring that EQ to the formula. And I'm thrilled to hear that there was an appreciation for you. And it sounds like actually a hunger for what you're bringing to the table. They were like, oh my gosh, we have a marketer and we need her opinion. You must've been like, oh my gosh, am I on a parallel universe? <laughs> I know. And honestly, it was like, 
it felt so good because after all of these years, sometimes you question yourself or maybe like we all do in our careers, right? As we grow and, and learn and, and gain confidence. But, you know, at, at that point, it really gave me that push, that momentum, that kind of emphasis that I knew what I was doing. I have the foundations. People need me here. They want me here. I could do it well. And it, it allowed me to just take the reins and go with it and feel really energized by that. Yeah, I see this a lot. This is certainly something that I dealt with in my own career. And it's something that I end up coaching people on a lot too, is that a lot of times when we're working really hard and we're not getting the response or the validation that we feel like we should be getting in that situation, rather than looking at it and saying, well, maybe there's something wrong with this environment. We'll look at ourselves and say, there's something wrong with me. And, and then that like erodes your self-esteem and then you're not showing up with as much energy at work. I always say confidence is the expectation of a positive outcome. So if you're not having positive outcomes at work and you've been pouring a lot of energy into trying to have that kind of partnership with sales or product or whatever, and you're not getting it, that naturally your energy starts to dissipate. And then you start thinking like, gosh, is there something wrong with me? But to be able to step back and take yourself out of that environment and put yourself in a different environment, and you're like, okay, I'm still the same person. And all of a sudden, I'm getting this response that I have hungered for the whole time. And the reality was that it was, it was the situation. It wasn't you and it wasn't your talents. Like you were always that smart, talented person. It's just that you were among people that did not recognize or didn't feel for whatever reason that they needed it or they didn't want to spend the time partnering. But yeah. it's not that marketing doesn't have value. It's just that some organizations, for whatever reason, don't understand it, or maybe they don't need to understand it because it's a 200-year-old brand. And like you said, you could put a lot of effort into things and it's not going to move the, the needle a whole lot. There's still a lot of products or, or brands within marketing or, quite frankly, commodities, right? Like, is it really going to make a big difference whether you go to bank A versus bank B for your capital raise, you know? Yeah, no, it's true. It's all really true. And I think kind of the realization of that was really important. And I think that journey is really important. And I think for a lot of marketers out there, I think it's important to have a lot of confidence and don't always get kind of disgruntled or feel a bit down about people along the journey, maybe not taking the advice or being open or wanting to partner, or maybe like you said, Terry, they just don't need it. But I think one of the things I've learned along my career is there will always be people, whether you're in marketing or you're building your own business, or you're selling a product at a startup, or you're working at a, a high growth company in operations or whatever it might be. There always will be people that have negative things to say about whatever you do, and they'll always disagree and they'll always kind of push back. And that's fine. That's how things are. And you just have to keep persevering. And, and I think having a growth mindset and just keep doing what you love most and it, it's fine. You just have to kind of keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That does get back to what I, I've talked about with coaching that you can have control over how you view your world. It really is based on your own beliefs and it can be difficult sometimes not to get infected by other people's negative beliefs, but just being able to build a boundary between your own mindset and what you allow into your mindset and what other people are doing. Try not to be infected by that. 
Well, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the MBA program that you went through because it really, from what I've heard, it sounds like it was a truly international experience. I mean, you talked about 42 people from 40 different countries, but there was something else that was pretty special about it as well. I mean, didn't you go to a lot of different campuses during the time that you were studying there? Yeah, I I think it was probably one of the best, if not best things I've done for myself in my life. And yeah, I felt very grateful for the opportunity and very energized. The school, it's called the Sade Business and Law School based in Barcelona. I joined as part of a year and a half program with 42 other international students. Out of the 42, I think there were 40 countries represented. So we had people from Lebanon, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Brazil, the States, and then all over Europe as well. So kind of end-to-end, basically global, not as much representation from Asia, but we had a great opportunity throughout the program to study around the world. So we did spend time in Shanghai, China, studying at one of the top business schools there, spent time in Sao Paulo in Brazil also studying at one of the best business schools in Brazil. I had also been lucky enough to take advantage of a partnership that I had with Warwick Business School here in the UK. It's one of the top five business schools here and took a number of classes, both at their London campus and up in, in Warwick. And then I also had the opportunity to study at the University of Tel Aviv in Israel. So when you take a step back and look at all of that travel, It was not just about going to those places, but it was embedding yourself within the local students in those countries. So we were very much able to learn with Israeli students or with British students or get taught by some of the best economic professors in China about what their view is on the markets in China and how they view the world from their perspective or going down to Brazil and really understanding how as one of the biggest countries in emerging markets, like how they're seeing their country evolve and how some of the challenges with that emerging market is, given they're trying to just like, their infrastructure and the way they do business is trying to catch up to their growth as a country. And really having those experiences with my 42 colleagues or students, friends from all over the world. And I think it wasn't just about the theory we learned in the class or the case studies we read or the presentations we gave around the world. It was actually, I learned almost more from the interactions with the Russians in my class or the Italians in my class and how people thought and how people approached problems, how people worked in groups together. And that kind of soft skills, that EQ that you talked about before, and that ability to kind of navigate within such a interesting dynamic environment, to say the least, was just priceless. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a huge networking advocate. And when I hear about the fact that you had 42 students, I mean, that's a small class, right? I I probably had about that many in my coach training class. And I could probably call up anybody from my coach training class and have dinner with them or, or ask them for a favor because you spend that much time with people and you really get to know them on a pretty intimate level. But for you to have 40 some people from around the world, oh my gosh, like that's the seeds of a true global network. That's amazing. 
It's amazing. It is amazing. And we have our WhatsApp group where we all still connect, even though we got out of the program. And, you know, we get news from what's happening locally in in Lebanon to what's happening on the ski slopes in the Alps to the south coast of Spain to what's happening over in Brazil. And it's really amazing. The network, I just feel that I can go almost anywhere to do business and be able to reach out to somebody in one of those countries for advice, for help, for a dinner, for a recommendation, maybe for a job one day. And I feel that's super powerful. And that to me doesn't really have a price on it. Right. It truly, as they say, it's priceless, right? That's amazing. So we didn't talk about this, but it's something that I know about you and I want to ask you a question about it. So I know that you were a division one soccer player in college. How do you think that that discipline and the competitiveness and having to perform at such a high level in your sport has helped you in your career. Yeah, I think about that a lot, actually, because I think playing soccer, or as they say over here, football, since I was about four years old, actually has really shaped me to be who I am today and a lot of the qualities I have for better or for worse. (laughs) But I think That kind of dedication, hard work, and competitiveness never will go away from me. And it obviously has a lot of positive impacts on me and and my career and how I operate. And of course, it has some negative ones as well. I think I'm somebody that because of having to show up every day at practice, whether it was in the rain or in the snow, whether there was traffic and I got there late, whether it was after my first or second practice at my high school and I had to go across Long Island to get to the state team's practice or whatever it was, I had to show up and I had to show up and give it my best, whether I felt like crap or I felt great. And I think that that is one quality that I always still do. If I say I'll be somewhere, if I say I'll deliver something, if I'm going to have to bring something to a head in a short time frame, I always will do it. And I always will do it to the best that I possibly can within my means at that point in time. And I think that's something that has gotten me really far. Also, the the competitiveness, I would say I've dialed that back down over the years, because sometimes I don't always think that competing with others is is very important. And as I've done a lot of self-work and reflection, I think it's actually competitiveness within myself nowadays. So it's more around setting high expectations for myself and wanting to see them through. And that sometimes brings little sleep and more stress. But also I think on a positive, it has allowed me to always push myself and stand up for myself speak up in that meeting if I don't want to and feel uncomfortable, give that presentation or raise my hand to offer presenting if I don't want to, ask for the pay rise, negotiate a good salary at a new job. I always kind of force myself out of my comfort zone to continually try to be my best and get better. And I think that's something with soccer, you're constantly forcing yourself to get better and compete and get out of your comfort zone. And I think that's something that's also really transpired for me over my life in in my career. I do think though that your best qualities also can be your worst qualities. So you have to find that balance. And as I get older, I try to find that balance more and more, but I really deeply think being an athlete is what has allowed me to get to where I am today and my success in my career. I also Mm -hmm. add being an American, I think also has very much helped me because one of the things I had found, which was a bit of an eye opener moving over to the UK and going to business school in Europe was my comfortability. And I'm not saying all Americans are like this, but relative to the rest of the world, I think the majority of them might be. We have this innate 
comfortability with being more outspoken, possibly more confident, maybe a little bit too enthusiastic to people outside the USA, being a bit direct and kind of more explicit maybe with giving and taking feedback and being comfortable with that. And I think that can, again, rub people the wrong way. But at the same time, I've found it has really helped me enhance and build my networks, be asked to present at conferences, be asked by my business school colleagues, almost every single presentation of group work I had, they all asked me to do it because not only was English my native language, but they felt that I was confident and a good presenter. And I've really seen some of those innate qualities we have as Americans to actually if you soften them a little bit <laughs> over here, it, it can be very positive and a very nice thing to help you enhance your career even further over here because I'm different. Yeah, there's a lot of things that you brought up in that. The first thing is I completely agree with what you said about your biggest strength sometimes being your your biggest weakness. I've seen it myself and with a lot of people that I've coached, especially people that are in job search and they hate that question. What's your biggest weakness? I say like, listen, usually your biggest weakness is your biggest strength overused, right? Like that we, we've got a hammer. And so everything looks like a nail, even when you need a screwdriver, right? <laughs> and if you use your hammer on the screw, it's not going to work good, right? But we have to have that self-awareness to be like, well, even though I like using the hammer, I'm going to put it down and I'm going to go dig through the junk drawer to find a screwdriver. It doesn't feel as comfortable. And I also really appreciate what you said about being an American. And of course, I'm American too. I'm proud of being assertive and enthusiastic and smiling a lot and all of that. And it's it's funny, you don't really think that it's a big thing until you are among people from other cultures, right? Working for a Canadian company for so long and starting to see through their eyes the way that they viewed <laughs> Americans. You know, I think a lot of times they were just like, we can't get away from them. <laughs> we're attached to them. They're so annoying. And I, I also noticed that with, I think that I might have said something to you before when we were doing the pre-call about my colleague and the UK. And I just asked what I thought was very basic question that we would ask anybody, like, where are you going on vacation? Right. <laughs> and him being like, it was like, I asked him what size underwear you wore or something like that. Right. <laughs> it was like, he was like, whoa, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're asking me where I'm going on vacation. <laughs> The, th the thing is you learn very quickly here when you do something a few times that you get those type of reactions and you're like, all right, something isn't clicking. And you learn very right. quickly as to what you might need to kind of adapt to and, and, Note and to move around or change. Yeah. Yeah. Bit. Very funny. So yeah. one thing that I wanted to ask you is sort of a follow-up to the whole question about how sports really helped you. Have you experienced much bias in your career based on your gender? That's a really good question. And it's something that I think about a lot. And at the early stages of my career, I had possibly felt that more. Working, starting off being a woman in finance, working at big banks, most of my bosses and colleagues and managers were mostly male. And I had felt very specific, direct instances where I very much felt I don't want to say not respected, but in a room where I never felt fully at ease with kind of being confident enough or felt that the room had a sense of air within it where I was at a level where I could speak up and voice my opinion and get the respect or the interest 
to take in my, my thoughts and feedback and knowledge. I think that could be a result of being one of the only females in the room. I think it could be a result of being in the first early stages of my career as well. And I think it could be a combination also of working in, in financial services. I also think at times upon reflection, it could also have been the New York City culture at some of the banks. Coming over to the UK, I personally, in my experience, have felt very differently. This is just my own experience. It could also be that my career has developed. I've become more confident. I ignore certain things now much more easily and don't let them get to me as much. I've gotten my MBA. I still work with many, many men, but I'm at a point now where I feel very comfortable with speaking up. And and if I don't, I push myself to, to constantly get more and more and more comfortable with having those difficult conversations or voicing my view. So I don't have those challenges as much. I do think though, culturally speaking, and I can't exactly explain this, but I feel culturally speaking, there's a lot more effort and a lot more underlying equality over here in the UK, in the office place based on the way people behave, based on the things people say, and based on the discussions in the boardroom or in the meeting room, where there's an air about the space and the meeting where it's very, very equal. I don't know where that fully comes from. Reading a lot of gender equality reports, the UK is very, very much ahead than the US in terms of equal pay and also feedback in the industry here in the UK around that needle being moved much more forward than the US has. So I think maybe there's some cultural differences there as well that has made me feel more secure, but that also is in conjunction with my ability to also just ignore it and speak up and do me. (laughs) Sure. You're not taking the guff, right? As you were talking about that, I was definitely relating to thinking back being a young woman. I didn't work in financial services early in my career. I worked in publishing, which there's a lot more women in publishing. And actually my first company that I worked for was owned by a woman. But But still, I think that there can be a tendency, especially for young women to experience sort of an objectification that people aren't looking at you as a person with a brain. They're looking at your level of attractiveness. And when you were also talking about being in the room and not necessarily feeling comfortable and questioning whether, okay, is that because I'm early in my career? You and I both worked at the same place. And I saw those young 22-year-old guys coming in. And they were treated differently, right? They just looked the part, right? Because 75% of the people in the office are men. And, you know, you're six foot two and you're wearing a Brooks Brothers suit. You look the part, right? And you're coming in with your University of Chicago or NYU or whatever. Yeah, I am really passionate about finding ways that that can develop and change. Women bring a lot to the table as it relates to leadership and as it relates to different ways of approaching business situations and managing them. And I think we're very, very good at multitasking. I mean, we can do 3000 things at one time and get them all done really well. A man, some might be able to do that, but I think we, a lot of us know that maybe they're not as good at, at multitasking. I think we can be very empathetic. Sometimes people might say that's more emotional, but actually, if you can manage those emotions, the empathetic side can actually create a really good working culture and people might lean on you and talk to you more and actually confide in you. And that helps you really build teams. And there's a lot of skills and the way females 
bring a lot to the table that can actually complement men and actually help companies succeed. And there's a lot of facts on that in terms of Fortune 500 companies that have women on boards. They generate more revenue every year. There's not a lot of them, but there's some interesting studies around that as well. And I also think to add to that, it's not just about gender. It's also about diversity fully. And that could mean people from different cultures. That could mean people from different countries. So for me, being in the U.S. and moving to the U.K. and joining a firm here, to me, that's diversity as well. I'm an American. I have a lot of experience from there and coming over here and taking that, my personality, my thinking, my experiences to that table, separate from being a man or a woman, that brings something special. And we need to think about that in terms of cultures as well and different experiences. So for me, I'm really passionate about gender, but also about that bigger picture of diversity in the room. Like, let's get the best people in the room. Sometimes it is hard to recruit a woman. I, I get it. But let's get the best people in the room from all over. And let's just get ideas going. Let's, let's, let's see what people think. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that if you are one of the only women in the room, you do have to have sort of thick skin and just reassure yourself that you have something to offer. I've heard about some studies that they've done on boards that when boards get two or three women, that the women tend to speak up more. When there's just one woman on the board, a lot of times they're sort of shut down or maybe they don't feel comfortable speaking. And I, I've certainly been in plenty, plenty of boardrooms where I was the only woman in the room. I was the only marketer in the room. I was the only woman in the room with a lot of men and having my ideas shut down when I knew they were good ideas, right? But there was somebody that just, they could only see things from their perspective and they were in a position of power and they didn't want to listen or they weren't ready to listen. I mean, I'm persistent. So I always kind of felt like I'm going to have another whack at the pinata if I believe that this is true, right? I love that. I just wanted to add one point on the gender diversity front. I'm really taking a full on challenge here for myself and diving head in deep, very deep, because I'm joining a cryptocurrency firm that has 17 men, and I'm going to be the first woman at the firm. So I will have to keep you posted on how I'm able to have an impact there leading their commercial side of the business as the first woman joiner, number 18. Way to go, Kelly. I, I love hearing that. I'm sure you're going to do great. And, you know, honestly, you've got superpowers that other people don't have. You do have a different perspective. And I mean, everything that you've said, you can step fully into your own power. That's so cool. We were talking earlier about the UK being more advanced in terms of equality. A couple things were coming to mind that, okay, well, they had Margaret Thatcher as their leader for 12 years. I actually just watched that movie about Margaret Thatcher not too long ago. The United States, we're not even that old. We're a very young country. And I think that we still have sort of that pioneer spirit, like we're cowboys having yeah. like riding across the prairie on our stallions or whatever. And it's just sort of like more of a masculine approach to things. And when you're talking about like Americans being pretty assertive and confident, I think that there's just something about this country, right? Like just even the, the geography of the country, right? That it takes a certain type of spirit to have the confidence to be like, yeah, I'm going to get in my covered wagon and go across this unknown country. <laughs> it takes a lot of courage. But I think in a lot of cases, that means that people have said like, okay, well, that's the only thing that is important is like somebody that's willing to go out and 
wrestle a bear or something. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much for being on today. It's been just really delightful catching up with you and also hearing how well you're doing. It's I'm very proud of you. Not that I'm your mom or anything, but I'm just so proud of how you have taken the bull by the horns and you've just taken risks and it just sounds like they paid off really well for you and you're doing exciting things. So do you have any last words of wisdom for our listeners? Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. Some words of wisdom, in my opinion, is to believe in yourself and to take risks. And risks are not something that need to be fully feared. I think risks are major opportunities and turning points for growing. And at the end of the day, a risk could just be made up in your mind and it might not even be a real risk. And sometimes risks really can pay off. I, I think maybe I was exposed to it in my, my coach training and the physiological response between excitement and fear is identical. And, yeah. it, and the only thing that's different is how we think about it, right? Yeah. Like we like to go to haunted houses and get chased by crazy people with chainsaws. And we're like, oh, how fun, right? And your heart's beating really <laughs> fast and you got adrenaline. But, you know, the reality is that if that happened in real life, you know, we'd probably have the same physiological response, but we'd be, you know, scared to death, not just for fun, you know. (laughs) There's something in behavioral economics called loss aversion. And it's basically this concept that human behavior is much more willing to take risks and invest in the potential to win, but they're very, very scared to basically encounter losses as it relates to shopping or investing, taking different risks along your career. But if you associate a risk with a potential loss, people automatically internally create much more fear associated with this loss aversion. But if you can change your attitude, and even for me, the startup I was working for went through really, really challenging times, whereas a few months on and off, I actually wasn't getting paid. And that was quite difficult for many, many different reasons during an MBA and living in London. But at the end of the day, I've become stronger for that. I'm not as scared now of the type of risks because for me personally, I know I'd be able to manage through. And going through that now, I feel things turned out okay for me. And at the end of the day, it's given me so much more experiences to learn from and actually learn how to build a business myself. That's so cool. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being on Marketing Mondo. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Mambo. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, like, and share. I'd love to hear from you. Check out the show notes for my social media and contact information. Until next time, adios. Mambo, mambo.